Hi there. Welcome to Season 3 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. And make sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. Today's guest is Rachel Westlake. One of the things that stands out to me about Rachel is the amount of attention she has devoted to her own growth as a person, how it's clearly reflected, how she engages with me, and no doubt her clients. And I also learned a few things about myself that I either hadn't seen before or didn't have language for. Besides supporting her clients and building her business, Rachel enjoys gardening and hiking. She lives in coastal Northern California with her partner and dog buddy. She enjoys cooking, creating random art, reading, body movement, and building a mind-body connection, and being in nature with loved ones. Rachel has been cancer-free for five years. During this episode of the show, I talk about a childhood sexual assault from my past. For some people with a history of sexual trauma, this can be triggering or reactivating. If this applies to you, please be sure you have the support you need before continuing on with the episode. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you're here too. So you have had cancer two times, yeah? That's true. And what was it and how old were you? I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma two times with 20 years in between. So the first time I was diagnosed, I was 15 years old. And the second time I was diagnosed, I was 35. And will you give everyone just a brief description of what you know of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, like exactly what that is? It can be a lot of different things, but it is a blood cancer that has to do with, well, mine had to do with the B cells that are made in the lymph nodes or the bone marrow. B cells. Yeah, I had diffuse large B cell lymphoma, but mine wasn't in lymph nodes, neither time. All right. And first time at 15, second time at 35, is that common for 20 years to pass and have recurrence? No, no. It was, there's some mystery there. Whether or not it was a recurrence or a de novo, we're not sure. It's almost something that I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about and explain outside of the timeline. <laughs> so maybe I'll share more about that distance as I, as I share more about the story as it goes along. So you said a recurrence or a de novo? De novo, a new, a new cancer. De novo, I see, yeah, right. Like I'm nine years out now from my second diagnosis. Uh-huh. My oncologist explained that if I get cancer again, it's not a recurrence, it's just you've got cancer again. It's like maybe it would be yeah. a de novo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So gosh, you were 15 years old and you're this teenage kid. Mm-hmm. How did you find out you had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Trying to do acrobatics. I was, <laughs> I was a runner and I was a long distance runner, but it, it was, it was track season and I ran track as well. And I was stretching after practice and I was trying to do a bridge. So I had my my hands behind my head, I was on my back and I was trying to raise up into kind of like yoga bridge pose. Mm -hmm. And my body wouldn't go up. And it was just the the weirdest thing because it was the first time in my life that my able body didn't respond in the way that I, I thought I was supposed to. 
So I couldn't think my way. And I didn't even know that I was supposed to think my way to moving, you know, the body, the body usually moves in response, but I wouldn't go up and I couldn't, (laughs) couldn't make it happen. And that's because there was a grapefruit sized tumor wrapped around my lumbar spine. And so I just thought it was weird. I wasn't really experiencing other symptoms or problems. And that was the only thing that was going on at the time. And I told my coach and I told my parents and we scheduled an x-ray. And pretty quickly after that, we scheduled an MRI. And that's when it was determined I needed surgery to remove a tumor at the base of my spine, which we didn't know we didn't know what that was. And did they determine what it was during the surgery or did, was it pre-surgery like uh, biopsy? There was blood work. I don't know some of the answers to some of the, the early stuff because I didn't understand cancer. I didn't think that that was any part of what was going on. It might have been mentioned and totally went over my head sure. um, if it was. But I knew something that was up that could be a bigger deal but there was very little in me that had reconciled that or considered it really. So maybe people were talking about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma before I had surgery, but I found out when I was told directly to my face after surgery and biopsy. Yeah, you were 15 years old. Yeah. When I was 15 years old, I was thinking about when I'd be able to buy a car and (laughs) obsessively thinking about girls. (laughs) (laughs) I was not, if someone told me I had cancer, it's just like, no, I'm not even going to try to pretend I could imagine, but I think to yeah. myself that must have just been like a whole lot. Yeah. Probably didn't have the bandwidth to, 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 to uh, absorb too much of what was happening, but you knew you had this tumor and you had to have surgery. Yes. Yeah, I knew that there was something going on in there and I had to have surgery and I met my neurosurgeon and I knew the surgery itself was a big deal because... I was interested in biology and I knew that the neurology of my spine was fragile and that there was risk associated with the surgery. And my neurosurgeon was really good and pretty direct in a pediatric friendly way about some of the possible risks of my surgery, Um, none of which I thought were really going to happen or pan out as far as, you know, losing mobility or anything like that. Did you lose mobility? No. Okay, great. No, but I mean, I think I was told, you know, you, you, you know, things, things happen when we're down here. We're down in the loose neuron stuff of, you know, like we're down here in a very fragile area and it's, it's a, this is a sensitive surgery. Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with the spine. Yeah. And I was in there for a really long time. It was a very long, long day. And I woke up in the middle of that surgery. Oh, no. Yes. And did you feel? No. I remember going in. I had a stuffed animal that, like, they had placed somewhere for me or something. And I remember waking up and looking at it. And they're like, she's awake. (laughs) Like, and had, you know. So that happens to redheads sometimes. To redheads? Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? Not too much. I don't know <laughs> enough science to com- around it to confidently say, but there's there's different dosages sometimes for redheads, I think. And okay. um, yeah, and 
different sensitivities to different medications, more or less pain, more or less. There's some studies done about it, but I can't speak too much about it. But that's what I was told when I woke up. Like, you woke up like a redhead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Goodness. So you go back yeah. to sleep. They remove the tumor from this after this very long surgery. Mm-hmm. And then was there any uh, adjuvant therapy? Was there any chemotherapy or radiation? Or? Yeah. So they removed the tumor that ended up being wrapped into my pelvis. I was in the ICU for a much shorter time than expected got to the pediatric unit and hung out there. I had 15 staples up my spine, so I had to recover there for a really long time, but I felt good and I, you know, was asking a roller bra- roller blade around the unit and I was just ready to leave. This was like spring, so we were moving into school break and I had to train for cross country. I needed to heal from the surgery and move yeah. on. And uh they were have they had me hang out there for a really long time. I can't tell you know, exactly how long I was in there before the oncologist came in and, and told me that I had cancer and told me that I had a, a thirteen month chemotherapy protocol. I had. Mm. Mm-hmm. So did you run track or was that not an option at that point? I was told that that would probably not be something I could do, but I was not told it was something that I couldn't do. So I had in my head that I might be able to do that. And yeah. um, I could not do that. Oh. I could not do that. Yeah. That wasn't an option. I didn't know it at the time, but um, it was an experimental, highly intensive protocol. I was in and out of the hospital for in treatment chemo and outpatient chemo very regularly with lots of other meds going on and um i wasn't well enough to run or be in school the whole time or be in school the whole time i went to school mm. part time i actually my community and the the teachers at my school were amazing and a couple of them helped me at home they came on their time and and helped with a couple classes so that i could continue and and finish my year that's wonderful it was it was awesome then you went back and finished high school? I was a sophomore when I was sick. I had a really difficult treatment and challenging year of new understandings of what life is and my fragility. And then I, I you know, was supposed to just re-enter the world and go back to being a kid. And graduated high school and was expected, you know, then to head to college, which I did, even though I wasn't, I, something in me knew that that wasn't a great idea. I knew I needed some time um, to integrate what had happened and to figure out what that meant for the rest of my life. But I grew up in, you know, at a time and in a community and with the socialized understanding that if you could get into college, you went to college. And I said, I don't think I should go to college. But my parents were like, you're going to be great at college. You're going to go to college. So I said, okay, sounds great. And I basically, it was pretty easy for me. So I had a lot of time to hoot it up, <laughs> which is what I, what I did with college. 
Nice. Yeah, I did the. Uh, I did a, a little of both. I would uh, go back and forth with that. But mm-hmm. what you said earlier, you're supposed to re-enter the world, mm-hmm. and that is such a significant part of survivorship. This supposed to re-enter the world thing. Hey, congratulations! You're cancer-free. Go get them, kid. Yes. You know what? Whatever age you are, it's just like um. Now, now I'm dealing with the fact that I have, as my, my way, I like to say, you know, the illusion of immortality has been shattered. Yeah. And it requires a lot of attention for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. A lot of attention to that profound shift in awareness, not to mention any impact, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, you know, the treatment and the surgeries have had on us. Yes. So, like it stepped over. Hey, ring the bell. You're done with chemo. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Bye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm curious about your thoughts about that at 15 years old or, you know, now reflecting back on uh, being a 15 or perhaps 16 year old by the time you were done and noticing like, oh, I'm supposed to re-enter the world now. Like everything's just fine. Yeah. I mean, I think I knew that I wasn't supposed to. I was ready to do quite a bit of inquiry but I also didn't know how to define that or the mm-hmm. parameters of that or what that was because I was 15 and I, I had a grip on something that maybe my parents didn't even quite yet at their healthy, like middle age. We, you know, my experience was our close to death experience as a family at that time um, in that kind of way. So the expectation that survivors are done with cancer and done with what that all means is exactly why I started the business that I have, which is Woven Health Advocacy. And I work with survivors during that transition time or at any stage of survivorship because I think that what folks need then is critical and what people need in their survivorship is also really particular because we all have a different story and a different experience and a different way that we need to integrate what's happened. Yes. I love that you're doing that. It's so Mm -hmm. important. And so many people don't have language for it. After I was treated for the cancer, I then had to be treated for the treatment. So I found myself back in the hospital, but that wasn't something my doctors were doing. That was something I was doing advocating for myself. When I was married, my wife and I were doing that together because it was clear that there were side effects from the treatment that were seriously affecting my life. And Mm. I would find myself wandering back into the chemo suite Uh and looking for the nurses that I knew Yeah, and wanting to connect with them. And they're busy administering chemo. And maybe I'll catch one who has a moment to chat, but like I didn't understand that I was too quickly swept away from this team that had been surrounding me for six months. Yeah and checking on my every need and, and all that it took as a guy to allow myself to be cared for. Yeah. All that softening to myself and letting go of all my expectations of, you know, how I'm supposed to be strong and be able to handle it. So I finally was like, okay, I need their help. I have to start telling them how I feel and not say I'm fine. Yes. And opening myself to all of that and finally engaging in that world and feeling free inside of it and then, boom, ring the bell, you're gone, conversation over, take care. And mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not like it's intentional, but that's how it leaves us. Mm-hmm. And so you being available for people, 
is wonderful. I mean, that's the work that I do. It's so important. It's, you know, of the conversation around cancer survivorship that's in its infancy right now. Yeah. And there's a lot going on right now. It's one of, it's very, it's interesting what's happened as we've moved online in this past year and the way support organizations and stuff have innovated and, and grown in, in the past year. It's been interesting in the first year of my business to just see all that's out there because I, like many people, was in survival mode for both of my cancer experiences. And when I was done, especially the second time, already being a health advocate, when I was done, I just had a particular way that I wanted to handle and manage my health. And it didn't really have a lot to do with connecting with other resources too much. There was some of that. What I do is try and help folks connect with what's out there and and create a team and provide patient advocacy because I'm a board-certified patient advocate too. But we don't sometimes know what we need when we need it. And we don't know what's out there when we need it. So I do a lot of resource organizing and I do it in a very customized way because like we said, everybody's kind of experience is different. But one thing that you mentioned and that I really noticed as a young person and wrote about as a young person was that something changes in the way you're treated when you're sick, whether it's your medical care team or your natural supports, the the personal support system that you have. You know, before Brene Brown and a lot of conversations about authenticity, there is an authenticity that I even noticed as a 15-year-old in 1995 in the way that that people were engaging with me. And this is before a lot of social media too, where where people might be performative about supporting me or something. I just I just had this genuine support. And it felt really different than like the games of high school, which was hard for me as an adolescent, as it is for many kids. That nonsense versus the the kindness of the way that I was being treated when I was sick, I a light bulb went off and I was like, this is how people deserve to be treated all the time with this kind of love and compassion and support. And I get to say that because I had a really privileged experience of a very loving family, a really great medical team. And um, I also, you know, grew up privileged enough that I was taught to speak up for myself. Yes. And my parents weren't always at the hospital during those 13 months. I had a younger sister. So I learned very quickly after a couple errors to, to speak up for myself. So I had a pretty interesting kind of window into some things that I, that I thought were really special. And that was married to this difficult, traumatic time. So there's a lot to unwind there. And that takes a lot of time. But you seeking out those nurses, I get that. You know, you you built a team of people who showed you love in a way that, that mattered to you when you were having a, you know, philosophical and spiritual awakening in certain ways. Of course you're bound to them. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And then you had the awareness to speak up for yourself. 
which says so much because I have a or had a good friend who has since passed away from a few bouts with cancer. When I was first diagnosed, she called me and said, Bert, you get to say how your treatment goes. Get more than one opinion. If your doctor's not comfortable when you say you want to get an opinion, notice that mm-hmm. and get the second opinion. Get the third opinion. She said, I didn't speak up. I didn't want to offend my doctor. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to insult him. Mm-hmm. Now, this woman, she was very high ranking, you know, state level for the uh, New York State uh, penal system. Mm-hmm. You know, she was up in the Capitol, you know, doing what she could to reform the system, you know, to try to make it, you know, her commit. She, her commitment was to like not have prisons anymore, not from the sense that we wouldn't need them, but like, you know, what, how can we shift this conversation so that prisons actually provide something for the prisoner? You know, now that's mm-hmm. a whole social political conversation, right, that I don't need to get into. But my point is she's having these conversations, very powerful person, working for the state, and she was too intimidated when she got diagnosed with cancer yeah. to speak yeah. up to her doc because, you know, she went back to like a child. Like a yeah. lot of us do when we get scared, you know, you get when you're afraid you can fall into reaction mode and what is incomplete from our childhood, from our childhood experiences, when we had to react to something scary, some kind of trauma, now that stays with us until we uh, complete that, right? And so she found herself doing whatever they said, took the most aggressive treatment she could, and said, Bert, don't do what I did. Mm-hmm. And I love mm-hmm. that as a kid, you got to speak up for yourself, because for so many of them, that really speaks to who you are as a person because at 15 again I can't say what I would do because I have no clue yeah I was 36 but what I can say is that it took something for me to speak up and I saw myself confronted by that round two when I was diagnosed at age 40 and yeah. at 15 you were like okay wait I'm the only one here and if I don't say something this is gonna go <laughs> you know, I need to speak up now well, I learned, you know, I learned through experience that I better check what's going in my IV because despite my wonderful team and all of these people who were clearly there to help me, like mistakes happen and I experience negative outcomes from those mistakes. <laughs> Other less important things happened and went wrong too. Like they took away um, my bedding one time with my special blanket in it you know to wash my it's mm-hmm. just you ha- you know like i learned to be unfortunately a little bit very hyper vigilant to my surroundings and what was happening to my person and my meds and i was wrongly administered an antiemetic for the second time one time and i had one of the most sufferable mm. experiences and you know other people were there at that time and you know we both just I had an advocate there at that time and we were both just like, gotta, you gotta know what's going in there. And just, yeah, early on, I was like, okay, what's that? What's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? I'm not supposed to get that right now. What's that? What's that? What's that? Yes, exactly. What's everything you're about to put into me? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. You know, I, I got to a point where after my surgery, I was recovering 
and the anesthesiologist came in and said, Hi, I'm here to remove your epidural. I said, You are? No one told me you were coming. He said, Well, they may not have told you, but I'm here. I said, My surgeon did not tell me that I was having my epidural removed. Mm-hmm. He's like, Well, he doesn't necessarily need to. I said, Okay, well, I'm not okay with it. And he was visibly mad at me. Yeah. I'm like, Sorry, pal. It's not happening. Yeah. Th- this is not between you and me. I'm just, I, I, I just, I haven't been informed. I don't want another mistake to be made. My surgeon, he had placed some drains. I think they're called J, who cares what they're called? I don't remember. These drains that when fluid builds up in your body after the surgery, it can drain out and fill this in this little container and they stitch it to your body, uh, inside your body, so it won't come out. A couple holes in it, there's some multiple holes in it so the fluid can drain and your tissue will slowly grow into this thing. So when they pull it out, it hurts like all hell. Mm-hmm. And it was a terrible pain. So my surgeon came in. Maybe he maybe it was right in the moment. I said to him, I loved him. His name's Bert Cager. And, uh, and, uh, I'm like, Bert, I said, why didn't you have my epidural removed after you took that out? Why did you take out my epidural first? And he goes, huh, that's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> And I love the man, but he hadn't thought of it. He's a human being. You yeah. Know? It's yeah. I mean, and surgeons are interesting. I loved my neurosurgeon, too. He was super great, bedside manner, really communicative. On the other hand, I had another surgeon place my initial porticath at my bra line. I was a adolescent girl. And we, I, we came out of there, and my mom was like, what did you do? <laughs> like, now she can't comfortably wear her underwear in a way that makes her comfortable. Like uh-huh. other things are already disrupted. So, you know, people don't think, and that was actually one of our, because that happened before I started getting chemo, that was one of our first lessons to pay attention was that surgical placement of that porticath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. And now here you are doing the work you do, board certified patient advocate, health coach, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a vigilance you bring because you've been there. You've had things done incorrectly. You've had things put into your body when they shouldn't be. That's someone you want to uh, keep close when you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do the patient advocacy end of my work when I've been working with folks for a while if they want me to step in in that way. And a lot of the work that I do is is healthcare navigation and helping people resource and then I can jump in and attend appointments and act as an advocate if that's the right thing too. But yeah, all of that stuff is hard and we all need, you know, an extra set of eyes and ears is something that that we all need for our safety really, regardless of who it is. And I say that having been someone who didn't want other people in some of my doctor's appointments, especially the second time I had already been working as an advocate and I just didn't always want my family in the room. It was very hard the second round, 20 years later, to have my mom have to um, go through the grief of bearing witness to me being being sick again. Mm, and sometimes yeah. I just needed to be able to focus and, and advocate for myself. I actually did a better job without other people in the room sometimes so yeah. you know it's all very personal and we find our way as we go yeah rachel the first time i was diagnosed 
uh, my wife and I were a team. And there was family that was, that struggled to be supportive. You know, there was my mom who was just like devastated that her middle child had been diagnosed with cancer. It was hard for her to manage and to show up a certain way. Uh, the second time I was diagnosed, I was well-trained. It had been three you know, plus years prior. So kind of funny looking back on it now, or uh, may I say, uh, just interesting in the difference that the first time through made because the second time um, I wasn't married and had a four-year-old boy, four-and-a-half-year-old boy, and I knew I had to advocate for myself. So I asked friends to go to appointments with me and to take notes. When I was yeah. in the hospital, I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering that time. That's four hours away from where I am. I got on helpinghands.com, and I emailed it to my whole list and said, if you know someone in New York City who would be willing to come visit me, I have like one friend down here, and I need people to come say hi to me and say hello and have a conversation. So literally, people walk in and go, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a friend of <laughs> so-and-so, and, and I'm here to talk to you. <laughs> Because <laughs> so cool. I'm like, I need this. I'm not doing this by myself. I spent most of my life trying to do things by myself. I'm not doing it again. Yeah. And I knew how to ask questions and how, to, you know, I uh, was happy to see that my surgeon and oncologist, they're both rock stars. You know, anything I asked about, they explained in detail how that had already been covered and answered all my questions. And I quickly learned, oh, these are not like my other oncologists. There's very little, if anything, probably nothing is going to be missed. I mean, you know, she told me one time to go see a urologist, and a month later I get a phone call from one of her staff. Hi, Bert, this is uh, you know, Gabby from Dr. Kemeny's office. She asked me to call it and see if you, uh, how your appointment with your uh, urologist has gone. And I was in a point where I did not want to deal with more appointments, mm-hmm. right? So I hadn't called yet. But this oncologist was so on point that she yeah. follows up and asks, you know what I mean? And she, she, you know, she found out I was hospitalized for a small bowel blockage like a month ago. Her staff calls me. Why didn't you call us as soon as you were in the hospital? I'm like, because uh, I was kind of freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's wonderful, but it doesn't happen most of the time. And, and, no. and sadly, you don't want the training of firsthand experience and all the possible dangers that the first diagnosis can get. You want someone like you someone like me sadly there's so many people who are not familiar with the conversation about you know why would i want a health advocate if people haven't been through the system in an intensive way before there's just and i was thinking about this when you were you know talking about how your friend didn't want to make the doctor mad the system is set up to reinforce a power structure that doesn't necessarily always work for our collaboration with our medical team. So that intimidation factor is common for everybody. And, you know, it seems common with young men who are used to being in positions where they know what they're doing and they're in charge. And so asking for help, asking questions is either, it's not what we're, we feel like we're supposed to do. We're supposed to accept the authority, move on and, and assimilate that instruction. It's, yeah. it's a dictatorial and instructional space. And what are some signs of that? 
that we are asked to call our physicians Dr. So-and-so. Mm-hmm. I learned to ask my physicians if I can call them by their first name mm-hmm. to level the playing field so I, I don't feel that, that hierarchy that hopefully it will help me to step out of the experience of hierarchy. You know, I call my doctor, Bert Cage or Dr. Cage, or I call him Bert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as time has gone on, I don't so much need to call my doctors by the first name anymore because it's in my bones. I get these, they're my partners. Mm-hmm. They have the expertise in their area, but I make the final decision. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, when I went to college, I was to call my professors, either professor so-and-so or doctor so-and-so. Mm-hmm. When I go to the hospital, I'm supposed to call them doctor so-and-so. Mm-hmm. How many other areas of my life do I address the authority with a title? Mm-hmm. You know, like police. Mm-hmm. We address with a title. It's like it, it, it creates the hierarchy that, that you speak of, you know, reinforces that power structure where you know, I'm already dealing with I relate it a lot to being a guy, but it's really just living in this country. Like, you know, there's this constant funneling of information through media that, you know, you should be strong enough and be able to handle it. You know, there's, there's only now because of social media and internet that people are going, people are hearing and reading things and seeing things that resonate with them when they go, oh, yeah, I prefer community. I don't want to have to be the leader of everything in my life and in charge of everything and understand everything. Like, can we do this together? Mm-hmm. That hierarchy of the doctor is the authority. I see so many people just say, okay, and listen, and told me I did what my doctor said because like, they're the doctor. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. It doesn't serve the doctor to be the authority about your life. They want you any good doctor wants you to be involved in the decision making. Otherwise, everything yeah. lands on them. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, a lot of this has to do with the, I mean, we could go down a very political and philosophical rabbit hole here, but the separation between the body and the mind and who's in charge of what is all folded into this. I think there's a difference between honor, like honoring people's knowledge and their experience and an authority. I've always been someone who really appreciates the teacher, the mentor, the master, the guide, the wise person. Those are roles that for whatever reason have been important for me I was a young person who had older friends you know like I I accept that I don't know everything very easily and the more I find out the more I realize I I have to learn and so I'm really grateful for people who um, know things I don't know and share things with me so that I can learn but the system is a little bit designed to the medical system is a little bit set up and it's not necessarily a person's wish like a a doctor or an authority person's wish to have it this way but to have you feel a little less in control or knowledgeable about your body um 
So a doctor does want, well, you know, some doctors do want their patients involved and it can be particularly helpful when a person is in touch with their body and can articulate their needs and their physical and emotional experiences because it can inform, you know, how the team moves forward Mm -hmm. with you at the center of that team. And that's usually how it works best. But, you know, patient-centered care is, we're working on it. It seems (laughs) to be something that's improving a little bit but there's a lot of time and a lot of history and a lot of power structures wrapped up in kind of keeping it the way that it is so there's a some unwinding to do there really is there really is it reminded me in 2006 or 7 i was diagnosed like a year later right i was in a training program and one of the leaders of the program told us how she'd been diagnosed with brain cancer years before prior and when she met with her surgeon for the pre-surgery meeting she told him that she forgave him if it goes wrong because surgeries can go wrong and then she forgave him in advance she said he was just like what (sighs) it it freed him so much it Uh allowed him to then Uh do his work knowing that you know of course he wants to do his best right Mm -hmm. but it gave him so much freedom inside you know at the time of the surgery so the first time I was diagnosed I didn't say that to my doctor because I was just like I didn't believe it I was still deer in the headlights you know second time I had surgery Dr. D'Angelica Memorial Sloan Kettering at the end of our meeting I said I want you to know these can go wrong these surgeries can go really wrong even when it's you're doing something routine and I want you to know that you are forgiven if it goes wrong Mm -hmm. I mean the gratitude that just was just flowing from his whole being he was he he was you know i felt uncomfortable because he was just so appreciative you know it was it was it was such a vulnerable space between the two of us in that moment i wanted him to be able to focus on his work and not have you know god forbid it get to a bad place and not have to carry that stress and anxiety like the doctor-patient relationship as it's currently set up is less than ideal. And mm-hmm. there's so much that we can do for one another in a different kind of partnership that serves the patient, serves the doctor, and serves the whole system. Mm-hmm. And we've got a lot of digging to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a lot to move through. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I super appreciate what you do before I ask you about your second diagnosis will you give everyone who's listening some examples of like what it means to have a patient advocate what's the benefit of bringing you on because they're getting an idea but I want them to have more than an idea I want to have I want them to hear some examples yeah so my services are broken up into um, coaching for self-advocacy research um, health and wellness guidance and patient advocacy. And those are all different. And I do a lot of research and coaching for self-advocacy these days, which has to do with with helping people find these teams and teaching them to navigate them themselves. And doing some of the grunt work when we're feeling 
a little, you know, when, when you're in recovery, whether it's a month after treatment or five years down the line, it's just, there's a lot of heaviness around it. And sometimes you just want somebody to help you find the resources so that you can plug them in. And I do that and I help them integrate them into their, their world and their life. So some of that resourcing and research is something that I can do. Finding specialists or finding everything from, you know, like the whole mind-body team, especially when young adults are diagnosed, the, the amount of disruption in their everyday life, all of that takes rebuilding. And just like we appreciated the support if we had a good team and had natural supports and had all those things going during, during treatment, you want that in recovery. You almost need it a little bit more. So because I totally believe that the, the client should be at the center of their team, we work together to figure out what it is that they need and who they need to bring on or what kind of thing is going on for them that they want more resources for. And then I help give them some options and we figure out how to plug those folks in for them. So a lot of folks want some mental health support, but some people might not want to go to talk therapy, for example. And so we work through what kind of emotional, psychosocial support might be great for them. And depending on their insurance and their financial goals and needs, we find resources that can help provide that kind of support. So... Maybe, you know, a, a young man who recently um, had testicular cancer and is recovering doesn't want to go to talk therapy yet because that's not really something he's comfortable doing now or ever. But maybe he wants some support with other people who understand what he's been through. And of course, there are tons of support groups and some people want that, know they want that, and some people don't know that they want that. And it's also really about finding the right, the right group, people who share your values, who you're interested in, in talking with. And so there's good fits for all of those things. And, and finding what is a good fit can be laborious enough to keep you from doing it. Maybe someone yeah. wants to explore a certain kind of mental health therapy and they don't know if it exists or, you know, or a modality is right for them. Maybe they want acupuncture, parallel care, functional medicine support to bring their gut back online, and they don't know where to find that. So I can provide a lot of those options. As a patient advocate, I can plug in by going to appointments and being eyes and ears, and that's kind of like a really cut and dry, like, I do that service when people know what they want and have a little bit of experience navigating stuff in the first place, then they can say, please plug in here. I know that I'm going to get triggered or I'm going to get a lot of information this day. You know, can you please attend this appointment or help provide me with notes during this appointment? Can you plug in and make sure that I'm covering this? And I really make an important distinction between that and health and wellness guidance because I think, you know, from the get-go, if people know they know what they want, we clarify that and then I do that particular thing for them. And if they don't know what they want and they don't know what kind of help they need, usually we go to health and wellness guidance services because they're basically saying, I need, I need some help figuring out how to do this. And that, you know, can 
move into coaching stuff too. So oh, yeah. Those are the ways I talk about the different things that I do. I love it. You know, during treatment or during recovery. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was diagnosed the second time, it was from the, the same hospital. They've been doing scans. You know, they're not local. They're like an hour away. They diagnosed me the second time. I went to Rochester, New York, which is like an hour and a half from here. First. I grew up there. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Did my second yeah. opinion there. Uh-huh. The oncologist was lovely. He looked at me like he was annoyed that I even went and saw him. He's like, I did the same thing. Mm. I was like, oh, I'm so, sorry I annoyed you, sir. Uh, oh. Yeah, it was very odd. And the friend that I brought with me, she was also the worst person ever that when we left, <laughs> I was like, I, we were, we're, get, we're in the car and I go, you know, so what I want you to know is like when I was annoyed with all those people in the waiting room and you were pointing out that it was really uh, you know, selfish of me and inconsiderate, my being annoyed with them had nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. I was really anxious about being my, at my appointment. So I was mm-hmm. being self-consumed and projecting it all, you know, my, all my annoyance yeah. onto them. I go, your job uh-huh. was to just to support me in that. And she goes, and by the time we were like halfway home, she goes, are you going to have me come do any more appointments with you? I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Still love you, but you're not coming with me anymore because like that's, yeah. it's so important. So a buddy of mine says to me, did you go to Memorial Sloan Kettering? I'm like, no. He's like, why not? I'm like, dude, the drive, the whole thing, the short of it is, Rachel, my marriage had ended. I, was, I, did, I had lost my job a couple months after my marriage ended. Then I was diagnosed, you know, like six months after that, a second time. I was done. I was feeling beaten up by the world. I was feeling beaten up by life. I didn't have it in me. I lost my job. I lost my wife, my job, moved out of the house, and was diagnosed with stage four metastasis all in 10 months. Like, I did not yeah. have anything left. And my buddy's like, what, do you need rides? I'll give you a ride. I go, well, those, you know, what about appointments? He'll give you the rides to those two. What else? I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. So I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I ended up being treated there. It was phenomenal, like no other oncologist I've ever worked with. You know, mm-hmm. someone directing me to someone like you could have been a whole nother way because there's so because it's so easy to fall into overwhelm yeah i don't have it or you know imagine if uh the woman that went to the appointment with, with me imagine if she was my spouse and i was really clear my spouse should not be coming to any appointments with me love my spouse dearly do not want them at appointments oh well rachel westlake can go with you you know <laughs> online you can bring her on her phone you know she can participate mm-hmm. And, and it's so important because yeah. someone diagnoses you and, and they're telling you about treatment and you're thinking about the fact that you have appointments and work and a vacation coming up and you're not hearing a word they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> or further along, just navigating all the research. I love that you said functional medicine because I have a friend, she's a nurse practitioner, fantastic functional medicine person. She and I were speaking two weeks ago about my gut health and doing some detox work and getting some blood work done because my immune system is not bounced back from all the chemo mm-hmm. I've had. Mm-hmm. And uh, it fascinates me that getting at the root of the symptom is new in the world of medicine. <laughs> like, you know, with functional medicine, I'm like, what? Yeah, well, it's a circle back around. Yeah, I think there's a lot. There's a lot of older medicine that that did that. 
And conventional medicine became really specialized and focused and symptom symptom focused, but symptom focused, yeah. Yeah. So twenty years later, you're thirty five. You get diagnosed again with the same cancer? Yeah, gener generally. When I was a kid and I had non Hodgkin's lymphoma, they didn't um they didn't call it diffuse large B cell. Uh, and I don't really know if they use that distinction now. But that is what I had as far as the aggressive lymphoma that was in my body at that time. And so I was diagnosed with the same kind of cancer when I was 35, but it um, was really different. I was experiencing a lot of knee pain and I was working really hard at the time and busy and uh, had had an earlier knee injury. Um, and I thought that maybe there was some loose tissue um, getting in between bone in my knee. I had had a meniscus tear. And so I was having knee pain that was becoming sort of really 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 painful <laughs> and waking me up in the middle of the night and sending me to the floor during the day mm. and you know it's I still was logically thinking like okay yeah this could be that but it's time for an MRI and some blood work and I had actually just recently I would say you know I was still dealing with hypervigilance and some of the PTSD stuff from my initial cancer but the idea that it could come back that I would get cancer again 20 years later was beginning to fade even though I knew from my own research and from being really communicative with my doctors I understood that a childhood cancer put me at greater risk for getting cancer again later in my life so it was it was running through my brain but I wasn't sure. So I got blood work. My vitamin D was low, which was a flag. And I think there was one other thing that I didn't have. And I've never really had the, some of the traditional early blood markers. But anyway, I got an x-ray and I got an MRI. And the MRI had just the MRI report w was just insane. It was like, you know, present non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or old non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but probably present non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or something. And I was just like, this is nuts. And I was in the process of moving from, I live in Northern California. I was in the process of moving from Humboldt to Santa Cruz. And I was going to start my advocacy business. I had been doing other stuff for a really long time. I'd been doing advocacy on the side. And for a while, um, this like direct client patient support but I, you know, was ready to kind of just like delve totally into that. I was really excited. I was making a big move. I had been in Humboldt since graduate school and, um, yeah, was transitioning. And um, I, I sent the report to my pediatric oncologist, who is an amazing, amazing doctor. And I, I just trust him fully. And I wanted... I wanted his read on the report. I wanted him to send it to his radiologist. And, you know, we had a conversation on the phone when I got it. I reached him and I was just like, this is nuts. Like, he's like, I don't, that, that sounds cuckoo. Um, 
you know, and he was kind of in my camp of like, I, maybe there's something misread here. Send it on over. Because I live in a rural area. These are not teaching hospitals in my local local area mm-hmm. here. It doesn't, you know, we have great radiologists and he read it right. But I wanted that second opinion from the institution that I trusted and the doctors that I trusted. And he confirmed it. And he was like, yeah, looks like um, that's what those scans look like. So get in with an onc. And I think I probably already made an appointment with an oncologist locally. And I showed up to the oncologist with my partner. And um, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, it looks like there's... Um, there's cancer all through this leg here. We should, we should go get another scan, I guess. And I was like, should I go get a PET scan now? And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's go to a PET scan. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's go get a PET scan and, um, show back up at that place. And he's like, yeah, this is all cancer through the bone marrow of all of your legs. And it looks like there's some in the upper lymph node of your neck. And that was a, there was major um, communication problems in that appointment. Um, there was no sensitivity. I mean, I don't even know, you know, there was, he didn't seem to have the ability to talk to me like a person, like he might not be able to. Um, he was just very, very clinical and very removed. Mm. And it, it was, um, yikes, almost interesting. So it was like, like the shock was sort of twofold because I didn't even feel like someone told it to me and the way that he told it was so abrupt. And so I just kind of got back in the car and I was like, you know, my, my partner tried to comfort me a little bit. I was like, I'm just, I'm really hungry. Like, let's get out of here. I don't know. I don't know what to say about all this mm-hmm. yet. Like, I need to digest this for a second. So, yeah. So, I decided, So I did tons of research. I, you know, reversed, rewound the tape on the move, went down and grabbed all of my stuff that had started um, to be moved over to Santa Cruz and came back here to just to make a plan. And then I just started doing tons of reading, tons of literature. And I talked to my pediatric onc several times and I just decided to go back to where I was treated um, as a kid. I wouldn't be in pediatrics, but I wanted to stay there. And they had had the, the, my pathology slides still because I had been a part of an experimental treatment when I was a kid and they were about to expire Mm. out of the archives. So they were able to review those when we discussed my diagnosis and treatment plan and what that pathology revealed, which wasn't read then, was that there was evidence of follicular lymphoma in my initial pathology. It wasn't found in the bone marrow of my legs the second time, but it was when they reviewed the slides, they found evidence of that along with the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma of my, in my initial tissue samples when I was a kid and so, of the tumor that was around my spine. Yeah, so by finding evidence of follicular lymphoma, what did that provide the team? So, so follicular lymphoma is a latent, quote-unquote, incurable lymphoma. It was also adu- adult follicular lymphoma, which isn't found in kids. 
and it and we didn't find it evidence of it in the bone marrow samples that we got in 2015 so it was really hard for them to then say what was going on you know there were things like well you shouldn't have had it and we would have probably treated the situation differently but we might have treated it the way that we did when you were a kid anyways and maybe this experimental treatment killed it and you don't have this incurable lymphoma anymore but you probably have this incurable lymphoma because we call it an incurable lymphoma Mm. so that's why it's really hard to talk about this and how I don't know I haven't really figured out um when I tell my story how to like share this mystery information without telling the whole story because basically what it means is that you know from what we can tell from a conventional medicine biological standpoint that, that you know like I have a latent lymphoma that has become an aggressive lymphoma it has mutated transmutated and become an aggressive lymphoma lymphoma two times creating both the initial non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that I had when I was 35. Mm. So when you say incurable, I notice you didn't say untreatable. Yeah, I'm not treating follicular lymphoma at this time. There are ways to treat follicular lymphoma if it becomes more persistent or aggressive. And right now we don't even, you know, have any pathology that shows where it is or what it would be doing or how it's hanging out. I don't know. You know, like, I don't know how or where it's hanging out in my body if it is, but I know that we all have cancer hanging out in our body. And, um, so I just try and live a really healthy lifestyle. And I embrace the fact that I had 20 years in between those cancers. And that is not usually how follicular lymphoma works. It would usually um, pop its head up much sooner. So it's a mystery. Mm, yeah. So, <laughs> it's an uncomfortable mystery sometimes. Now, I want to make sure I'm following. What was discovered in your lymph node and leg? Were those- oh, so there was actually not any activity. He told me that... the it would have made it even a little bit more scary. It was still stage four diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It was in the bone marrow of both of my legs. But the the nodal action that they saw on the pet was brown fat, which is good healthy fat. High metabolism had picked up the sugars and was actually fine. So that was great. In the PET scan, you mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. But it was, so it didn't jump the diaphragm, but it was on both sides of my legs in my bone marrow and considered stage four. So that meant an intensive protocol and a stem cell transplant. Mm, that's a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So say more about that. So they told you they needed to do what? You needed to have, what treatment did they recommend? They recommended a pretty standard treatment for recurrent DLBCL. For some reason right now, the acronym is escaping me, but there were some meds that I got when I was a kid and there were some different meds and there would be several months of chemo, about six, 
or seven and high dose chemotherapy and stem cell treatment and or stem cell transplant and it was an autologous stem cell transplant so they harvested stem cells from me and then treated with the high dose chemotherapy that required new stem cells to recover from there's a couple different reasons mm. and ways they do stem cell transplants but mine was a you know used my own stem cells and they were meant to replace and allow me to live after the level of chemotherapy that they gave me so they harvest some of your healthy stem cells mm -hmm. and then do a chemotherapy treatment and follow that with uh, and and they said you said they use the healthy stem cells in that treatment yeah they um use my stem cells after i get the high dose and once you know my immune system has been totally wiped and what did they do to wipe out your immune system before they could put in the new stem cells very very high dose chemotherapy okay that would have otherwise killed me if i didn't get stem cells put back in my body does that make sense it does make sense <laughs> i you know so early on in this podcast i learned to not research people's diagnoses Mm -hmm. because as you know, as most people have been through it, know, yeah, well, that wasn't the case for me because I had blah, blah, blah. And this wasn't the case for me. I mean, like, you know, I, I'll be yeah. a doctor by the time I've figured everything out. So I have had... Doctors don't know. And doctors don't you know. Do, you know, like, <laughs> and they, they love to default to, well, each cancer is unique. Right. And that's what I do. <laughs> that's what I default to when I work with my clients is like, not only are you a completely unique gem of a human being but your cancer behaved like its own wild animal and the combination of the two of you make your experience just yours you know like yeah, yeah. it's just yours a woman by the name of casey head kang was in season two and they removed her immune system by radiating her entire body yeah. and so with you they removed your immune system by high dose chemotherapy yeah, they try to wipe out anything that might be left by the highest dose of chemotherapy that they could use, and then they sort of like rebooted me. How was the outpatient chemotherapy for you? How did I feel? Yeah, what were the side effects? How did you experience it? You know, it was clearly they have made some big leaps in those 20 years. I mean, I also had a very, I had, a, I had different meds different chemo medications, as well as a very different protocol as a young kid, but I was not as sick as I was as a kid. I didn't have um, fever and neutropenia during my treatment, which is when my white cells would go to zero and you have a fever that happened. When I was 15, that mm. happened a lot. I was admitted through the emergency room several times with fever and neutropenia as a teen, but I didn't have that. I didn't have like really severe nausea and I had pretty classic chemo side effects but I had something to compare it to that was a little bit different and I think it was a combination of you know the advancement of science and the differences in the protocol itself but I did better there were better antiemetics I mean I was told that really quickly when I got sick they're like we came up with some good stuff while you're gone <laughs> so. <laughs> you were gone. There's a great book. I don't know if you know it. It's called uh, The Emperor of All Maladies. I've heard of a that. Biography of Cancer. Mm -hmm. And I 
would say the name of the author if I looked it up, but I would destroy it, so I'm not going to. It's a brilliant book, heartbreaking, and also reveals the evolution of cancer alongside with the evolution of treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's beautifully written. I tried mm-hmm. I tried to listen to it, the audio book, not that long ago. And honestly, Rachel, it just brought up so much emotions. You know, the visceral response. Like my cheeks just got tight right now and they, my mouth started watering and I can feel the tears welling up. It's like I was like, Okay, not today. Mm-hmm. Brought up a lot. Brought up a mm-hmm. lot. I uh mm-hmm. You know, and, and for those of you listening, and for you, Rachel, like, I don't consider that a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, life is profound, right? And if the more present you're willing to allow yourself to be, like, emotion arises. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I lean into it because I know mm-hmm. it's speaking to me. Mm-hmm. And there's it, it's drawing my attention for a reason. And there's other times I'm like, I know you're drawing my attention. And right now I'm not going to go. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like going on that walk today. <laughs> I don't feel like going on that walk this month. You know, it's there's no requirements, right? Really, just being easy with myself. You know, but it's it's a wonderful yeah. book. And cool, I wrote it down. Yeah, I think you'll like it. Uh, and it must have been nice to hear from them. You know, we've made a lot of progress while you were gone. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was like, great, great. But there were really different things to think about this time. My fertility, stem cell mm. transplant. About halfway through chemo. Actually, my pediatric radiologist bounced down. And I never got radiation when I was a kid, but he was a consulting pediatric oncologist. And he came over to an appointment and was like, hey, I think we really need to do radiation after this. And I was disappointed to hear his conviction around that. He's like, you know, we don't don't really know what to do if this doesn't work, so... We want to hit it. And my team knows very well that that I care about parallel care and functional medicine and balance. And that I, for my experience, I don't like to use things like battle and hit and destroy because for me, it's about bringing my body into balance and that there, I believed in, in the fine line between, you know, once I committed to this protocol, between doing what we had to do to make sure that it was worth it and preserving my quality of life for the future and my body's ability to be resilient and recover from treatment. And I was balancing all of that as I managed my care the whole entire time to their annoyance sometimes, for mm-hmm. sure. But that was fine. You know, we, we we laughed about it a lot. And I was laughing at them and they thought they were laughing. <laughs> you know? Been in those like, situations. Like, oh, yeah. Rachel with those ideas of her high-dose vitamin C and, you know, like all these other things that she wants to do. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do other stuff. Mm -hmm. We're just going to figure out how to work together. And you're going to, you know, I'm going to introduce you to some other people on my team. And I'm not going to do anything to make this chemo not work. Right. But there are some other stuff that I'm going to do. And so anyway, hearing that radiation had to be a part of that was a little bit of a hit. Not only did it extend my treatment several months, but it was something that I had wanted to avoid for prevention reasons in the future 
Um, and especially at that point, knowing that there is this follicular lymphoma component, I certain things need to be sort of like doled out now. I'm going to need ongoing scans and, you know, we're going to always need to keep an eye on this and the amount of radiation that I have gotten and will get in the future was a factor for me. Right. So I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. You declined the radiation in anticipation of the possibility of radiation in the future? I didn't decline. I just didn't like hearing that he felt so strongly about it. Okay. I was, I had to, it was another thing that I, that was a factor that was different than last time. It was another thing that I had to integrate that really was very different for me from my first cancer. Radiation, fertility, I think fertility was probably a little bit of an issue the first time, but it wasn't discussed with me. But high-dose chemo and fertility were issues to discuss. And yeah, and I was an adult. I knew what was going on in a different kind of way. And it was, you know, actually a lot harder. And it was harder, as I said, to watch my family have to deal with this before. And I was dealing still with the repercussions and the PTSD from the first treatment. So Mm. it was... It was an emotionally more challenging time than the teenage, like, I'm plowing through this, like, ready for, ready for the next thing. Yeah, that's a great distinction between the two. As an adult, there's way more awareness. There's way more self-awareness. That's going to affect your approach. It's going to affect isn't the word I'm looking for. What's the word I'm looking for? Inform inform your approach thank you yeah so after six months of this they wanted to give you some radiation was the radiation before the high dose chemo followed by stem cells no it was after the it was after my stem cell transplant and recovery from the stem cell transplant they gave me a little while to cook and grow um some immunity back and then i did radiation What's the stem cell treatment like? The st- or the stem cell transplant? I did guess, I excuse me. Thing? No, I did. I, oh, um, okay. I think I said that before, so it's fine. Uh, all the lingo. The stem cell transplant actually was, I was really curious and intrigued about how that would go. High-dose chemo seemed like it was going, um, like it was okay. You know, I was reaching the levels um that they needed me to reach, which was at zero on all, all things and not having white cells and, you know, like being knocked out before they, and giving that some time, giving the high dose chemo the time to really kill all of the cancer cells. They, the, they gave the, you know, time for the high dose chemo to work. And then, and then I got my stem cells put back into my body. I was really kind of excited about that. I thought it was really interesting. As I said, I'm like, I'm a biology science geek. I'm a health nerd. Like, I love all of this. I actually really like tech and was interested in, in, in tools. And I was really interested to see how that would work. And, and it was awful. I tend to get really allergic to this is going to be totally non-scientific and it's, it's more my personal way of understanding this mm-hmm. so that I can stay alert to it if I am in a setting where I think it might come up and it's not always medically accurate. But I tend to get allergic to things that hold other things. 
So the preservatives and the stem cells, I was allergic to those. I need my blood washed three times to be able to get blood. I am allergic to some contrasts for scans. I guess I was really allergic to that. There's usually some oral and swallowing stuff that comes up, or there can be some swallowing stuff that comes up when you're given your stem cells, which is this slow push. And during that slow push, I my throat started to close and I was having some close to anaphylaxis mm. stuff and they had they had to have other people come in and it just made it really kind of torturous and scary because I needed those back. I needed those back in my body. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to have your body resist the returning of your stem cells. Yeah, I wanted it to be, you know, I mean, I wanted it to be this cool experience and this, you know, I wanted to be in a space where I was welcoming those back into my mm-hmm. body to heal my body, but I was in another level of, you know, okay, we got to monitor there, you know, monitor this and I need more Benadryl and we need to go slower and it was just kind of this really really uncomfortable painful feeling in my chest and you got really dope sorry out. to scare anybody who needs a stem cell transplant I don't think that happens very often and it was okay I was okay it just took a really long time and it was it was uncomfortable and that was unexpected yeah yeah you know I think it's important that people hear for sure when treatments don't go always as planned it's mm-hmm. it's valuable information and it can be a bit scary yeah. I mean, if you just read the side effect list of most treatments you get for cancer and you're just like, dear God, like, yeah, if I get 10 percent of these, I'm going to be struggling. I, of course, yeah. was the poster child for side effects. They're like, wow, we've never seen that before. <laughs> Congratulations. <Bert. laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I won't get any of those. I've gotten into them in other podcasts. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to hear. I mean, you need a you need like a badge vest. You know, I'll read my blog sometimes. I kept a blog. I saw yours. Yours looks great. I deliberately didn't read it because I wanted to come in here curious and not knowing. Oh, you know? Yeah, I just put that up very quietly the other day. Oh, well, I just <laughs> announced it to the whole world. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I was I kept, you know, I'll look in my blog now and again. I kept a very uh, active blog through my treatments. And I'll read some of them and be like, oh, my goodness. Like I had mm. completely forgotten about that one because I just can't remember all the side effects just the you know it's like they gave me radiation i had rectal cancer the first time so it was was right near my anus so they're just hitting my anus hard with radiation for five and a half weeks and you know it's got a sunburn on a sunburn on a sunburn on a very active part of your body totally and they put this lead vest on me but they didn't put a little lead vest on my testicles and i don't know why they need to have like a little mini vest i was like like i had thumbnail size boils on my testicles with like four and five whiteheads on each one. Like I was walking yeah. bow-legged. I was in, and there had a whole crew of radiation staff, like four or five of them, all just hunched over and staring at my testicles and noticing these things. And they gave me what I needed. It was this uh, incredible uh, material. Can I remember the name of it? Nope, but I can see it. It's used for burn victims, and you put it on a burn, and when it is removed, it doesn't peel anything off. 
Mm. So I was able to put that over the boils. I mean, it's just, it's just mm-hmm. insane. It's just insane. I don't understand why they don't have a testicle vest jacket. They need one. There needs to be a little, a little, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it makes no sense that they don't have one. And gosh, the lit. I mean, there's got to be some reason. It's just so weird. <laughs> right. When you're outside of a system and you don't know how the system works, you know, it's, it's easy to speak yeah. to another person and be like, why do they do that? That's ridiculous. Okay. And then, then you, yeah. you're part of the system. You go, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's like when my surgeon removed the epidural before mm-hmm. removing the drain it's like mm-hmm. maybe they don't put a testicular lead jacket on you because no one's thought of it i don't know it's like the li- yeah. the list of things that list of questions that i could hit you know any doctor up any yeah. oncologist with from all yeah. these conversations it's just mm-hmm. phenomenal and that's you know in part that's yeah. what i hope this will provide you know that this will land in certain ears mm-hmm. where someone's going to say wait a second we were just talking about that, you know, and, and yeah. forward the cultural conversation, the dialogue about cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I think that that doctors and teams and biologists and engineers learn from patients a lot these days. And the more we can do to teach them about what we need, the better. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And I just think it should would be a real treat for someone to design a testicle jacket. So I hope when they do that, it's great. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. We ain't there yet. (laughs) No, there's, you know, institutions have patient advocates or health navigators sometimes if they're good and they're really important. And it's also great that the independent health advocate, patient advocate industry is growing and that more people are getting certified to do this work and that the professionalization of this work is starting to be recognized because to have someone who works outside of those systems be able to plug in for folks and and help is so important. And, you know, the... Patient Advocacy Certification Board and a couple of the organizations that do this kind of patient advocacy, helping other people with their healthcare issues. You know, our hope is that there's a patient advocate for every patient because you usually need one for one thing or another. Yeah, and you may not yeah. know you need one. Mm-hmm. Like just do a weekly mm-hmm. update with a patient advocate and they're like, red flag, red flag, and red flag. Okay, let's mm-hmm. <laughs> review these things. Oh, why, that's not normal? Mm-hmm. That's it. Just there's, mm. mm-hmm. and there's other things. Just like as we begin, as we talk about the patient experience, because there's so there's in the world there's patient advocates who do what we're doing by having this conversation and sharing our story, working to change legislation and advocating on the hill, and there's patient advocates. This ter- this term is used for a lot of different roles, but. As we have conversations like this, the other thing that we're doing, just like coaching does, is, you know, teaching people to interact with the medical system with certain base skills, too, is the more that spreads, the better. Like if one of the things that I would have said to you, which is just a a basic great tool for patients, is if you have a concern that your doctor doesn't really want to think about or address or investigate further 
a great thing that you can do is say, can you please document that in my chart? That you don't think that we need to go any further with this and that I have a concern. It gives them an opportunity to really think about that. I think I saw that in one of your Instagram posts recently, yeah. did I? <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Can you document that, please? Oh, mm -hmm. well, yeah, may uh -huh. maybe maybe suddenly they don't want to document it. Maybe something, you know, just please make a record of the of the decision you're making. Please. That you're not concerned Yeah. about this thing that I'm concerned about in my body. Okay. So I want to address that that would cause my mouth. So what would happen as I thought to myself, okay, I'm now going to say, will you please, I'm actually having a reaction right now. Will you say it again? Yeah. Yeah. Will you please document that in my chart? That you don't want to pursue this thing that I'm concerned about. Uh -huh. So my mouth would get dry. My heart rate would uh -huh. increase. Uh -huh. It would be difficult for me to communicate that. It would be hard, for, you know, mm -hmm. the words would probably come out with me stuttering and half apologizing for saying it. Mm -hmm. What do you say to folks like that when I don't, I'm having a reaction to mm -hmm. confronting my doctor, mm -hmm. even listen to the mm -hmm. language that I'm using, right? Like I'm having a reaction to making mm -hmm. this request. I don't want to make waves cause upset, have the doctor resent me. What do you say to a person who doesn't want to say that yeah so if we were in a, a coaching for self-advocacy session and I suggested that you know if it got to you know they had a concern we were talking about how they were going to talk about that concern in an appointment and I made a suggestion like that as maybe like a Mm, last choice or second to last choice of ways to navigate that and they said just the idea of that is making me feel really uncomfortable and ungrounded, or maybe they wouldn't use that language. We would talk about grounding. And, or maybe they uh, wouldn't, maybe centered. they'd say, okay. And then next week when you talk to them, you had that conversation go, oh, I never had it. <laughs> because yeah, I'm too scared. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a lot of coaching starts with motivational interviewing and trying to understand why people want to do what they want to do and what their values are and how that lines up with their objectives. And that can be micro or macro. And in things like this, and if someone wants to figure out what's going on and the goal is to be heard about this concern that they have, then, you know, a lot of it is connecting with that goal. But that doesn't mean that people aren't going to be triggered no matter what. It's hard for me that the relationships that I built when I was a teenager were really formative or formulative of the way, is that the word? Formative. Um, <laughs> the relationships that I built with my doctors were really formative in the way that I build relationships with authority and that I want, I want that relationship to be positive. I want to have a positive exchange where I feel heard and they like me. Not only because that makes me feel better. But why does that make me feel better? It makes me feel better because it gets things done. Mm -hmm. So I think it really depends what kind of conversation we're having yeah. and about what sure. and what provider we're talking about and how fundamental they are to a person's team and like the whole big picture. I think that it's important for people to know that it is a good 
in general, it's a tool that they can use if they really feel shut down. Thank you for talking through that and providing that answer the way you did. I really appreciate that. And one of the things that came up for me as I was listening was like, if you have to ask that question, are you going to want to continue to partner with that doctor? And you actually have some say. Like it's, you know, why are you asking that question? Because you want this addressed. You're recognizing your power in your own self-advocacy. And if the doctor doesn't respond well, that means that you're not having your needs met and your concerns are not being addressed. And therefore, you want to ask, do I want this doctor? Boom. Now, your client is in a position of, oh, wait, yeah, I'm doing this for me. This is, I'm not following the doctor's lead. We're partnering. So, yeah, I'll go in there and ask him if he will then, or if she will then document that, of course. And if they say no, and if they have an issue with it, well, then great. Now I know I might not be matched with the person. You see how my energy has just changed in this conversation. Like it's Yeah, it can be really clarifying. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it, It doesn't mean that it won't cause trouble. That's hard to rebound from, though. Not all of us, you know, not everybody has the privilege of being able to then navigate. You know, they might read that tip on my Instagram, try it, and have some small institution that they're working with and not very many options of figuring out how to navigate what to do next. It's it's all kind of so situational that you have to kind of feel okay with what may come out of it. And people might not be able to be like, okay, now I know to go get a second opinion and I have options because we often feel like we don't have options. And even when we do, it can be really complicated to figure out the next step. So it is all woven together and very, very situational. And I wouldn't advise anybody to do anything that they're really uncomfortable with. And if you think that it's going to create a divide that you can't recover from with a doctor that you need right now, maybe it's not the best fit for you. Yeah. And this conversation, this is part of all of it. This is part of hiring someone to partner with you as you navigate your diagnosis because it's all so specific to you. Mm-hmm. There is no cookie cutter way of dealing with yeah yeah and if you can't hire someone and there are uh, uh, other people who do what I do I'm very specific to young adult cancer survivors and other people recovering from chronic illness but there are so many people who do this and I don't know if you provide like links or show notes or anything like that but I can give for for my caption I can give some resources for other places that people can find dedicated independent health advocates if I'm not the right fit for them I hope they find someone who is and not everyone can afford that I try to keep a pro bono client at a you know like going at the same time and if I'm getting me too Yeah, there are organizations and resources and people who can provide some individuals, you know, case specific one off navigation or more. There are there are a lot of organizations out there. As I said earlier, one of the problems is knowing that they're there when they're there. So it's all kind of hard to find that resource bank. But there are people who are working, working really hard to gather those resources. And I'm I'm one of those people. 
I love it. I love it. I, what I'm discovering is these organizations that just provide so much support. At first I was like, wait a second, where were they when I was diagnosed? And I look at their web pages and go, oh, they didn't exist. Like just in 2007. Yeah. Like it's a very different world. There's so much information. There's so many people out there creating foundations so they can, and, and NGOs, so they can do what you and I are speaking about. Or may I say, so they can be a piece of it. It is developing. Again, we are in the infancy of this. Yeah. And it's exciting and it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But people are talking about things like patient-centered care. People are talking about comprehensive care. People are talking about whole person health. People are talking about mental health. This is amazing and wonderful. And we just need to be a part of continuing that conversation and, and changing, changing the conversation around it. Yes, we do. And so you had your, you had your stem cell transplant. Uh-huh. They went well, ultimately, mm -hmm. other than being on a lot of Benadryl, which probably wasn't very mm -hmm. pleasant. Mm -hmm. And did that complete your treatment? Then I did the radiation. And then I pretty much jumped on a plane and moved back to California. <laughs> <laughs> and when was that? That was January 2016. January 2016, so mm -hmm. it's four years. Five. Five, it's 2021. I keep forgetting, yeah. it's five. Yeah. Five years. In my world, in, my, in, in, in the part of the cancer world that I have found myself, five years is a big number. Yeah, it, I tell you, it kind of just passed. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I have like special moments and special markers and things that I honor about time passing with my treatment. But again, for me, because it was about coming back into balance, I mean, I think it would be, it would be cool. I think that, you know, like I got my stem cells in late October. It was a little bit before Halloween. Like that definitely was kind of a, a special thing, but I don't, now with the confusing nature of my diagnosis and the way that this has all gone down, I don't do a lot of anniversary stuff around my cancer. I was wondering, yeah, um, I was wondering about experience. that. Experience, yeah. Um, I'm not an anniversary, I'm not an anniversary person. I don't really, you know, I some people are like, yeah. yeah, this time of year is hard for me because I lost so-and-so or this happened to me. Like, I, I understand, I'm following, but it's not how I operate. So for me, my doctors just pounded into my head, five years, bud. If you get to five years, that's a big deal. So it became a number that I was like, you know, that, like, okay, I'm here. It's been five. And then if my scan is clear... I know that 10 years can also be a, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years means something. You know, I, yeah. I believe that if next December my scan is clear, that I may no longer have CT scans, which would be great because oh, yeah. anytime you can avoid that kind of radiation, you want to. 
And mm-hmm. gosh, the contrast is bad for your kidneys and da 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 da. And at the same time, when I left the hospital, when my wife and I left the hospital with our baby, we were like we're driving down the road, you know, probably going five miles an hour the whole way home. And I'm like, they're just letting us leave with this baby. <laughs> we didn't have to pass any tests. <laughs> we just got to leave. Okay. Same thing right. with like, I, I'm anticipating a similar feeling. It's like walking. If they tell me after 10 years, okay, um, we don't need to see you anymore. I can imagine myself just being, you know, like looking back, like I'm really just going to leave and nothing. You know what I mean? Like no more tests, no more scans. Just let us know, you know, if you have any symptoms, go see your doctor kind of thing. It's, uh, I'm yeah. not going to pretend for a moment that it doesn't seem really odd. It's it's like another aspect, I guess. I'm only seeing this right now, that it's similar to when chemotherapy ended and I left. It's like no one's going to be here with me watching. No one's going to be making sure that like <laughs> my body is functioning properly. Yeah, I know. I know. And I, I guess that's why creating ceremony around those things is actually really great to kind of to market ourselves and to honor it ourselves and I think for me because I got cancer 20 years later and at that time found out that I had had a latent lymphoma in my body the whole time right. that I didn't know was there probably not even like absolutely no there's not a way to understand it not absolutely being in there the whole time it's all just so and the the kind of like ethos and the the feeling the value that I have that this is it's also unique for everyone I just don't mark it with time I feel really glad for the time that I have I feel like I'm still you know on a personal level I feel very feel like I've had an amazing healing experience over the past six years for a lot of reasons but I honor the process of that and I notice what's there that I'm still working on and I look at that as a new project kind of all the time that I'm that I allow myself to be fascinated by and curious about and not obsessive about and I check my identity a little bit around Mm -hmm. cancer and making sure that other parts of my identity are rounded out it was a it took me a little bit I knew I wanted to do health advocacy but it took me a little bit to to really embrace that I wanted to work with cancer survivors because I wanted to make sure that I was coming from a place where I was ready to do that without being too in the mire because the kind of work that I do is about being focused on other people. So it's interesting. I mean, this is the first time I'm publicly sharing my story in this way besides with my community. I'm honored. I'm Thank honored you. that you're doing that here with me. Yeah. I, you know, I want the way that I want to be in the in the cancer communities now is as someone who who is um, here to help 
And that doesn't mean that I'm not always working through my own stuff with it, but it also means that it's not where my identity is focused right now. And interestingly, getting there was sort of this big next step for me to be able to be like, no, I can do this and still be working through my stuff, which is obvious, but I had to give myself permission to do that too. I get what you're saying. There was a point like that for me as well. For instance, you just brought to my attention how, well, gosh, you brought to my attention that, you know, there's, there can be ceremony, you know, around creating ceremony around what we're experiencing through the transitions. Like, you know, uh, I really got what that meant in 2003, I think when my father passed away and when we went through all the steps of the funeral, I thought I wanted to become involved in some kind of religion. Or that, may I say I had the passing thought. It was in my mind for a while. I'm like, what is this? Why am I wanting to be engaged with some kind of formal religion? I went, oh, because they have tradition. They have ceremony. <laughs> and this provided mm-hmm. me something really important. And if the no more scans point arises, you know, if that's part of my experience, then thank you, Rachel. I will engage in some kind of ritual or ceremony to move through that and to, and to complete it. And I would have never thought mm-hmm. of that being, without mm-hmm. being here with you. And you mentioned earlier when you spoke about addressing your doctor and asking for it to be documented, the conversation and other people in this conversation, someone brought me back to when I first got the colostomy and I had no language to say, I didn't want to be in my body anymore when I looked down and saw that thing. And even years later when people spoke about not wanting to be in their bodies, I didn't really know what that meant until one day having the conversation on this podcast and it just made me shiver. The mm. opportunity to cry just arose up in, in in my physicality. Like, just like, wow, yeah, that's what that was. I've never connected the two. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in my body. And it was a time in the past where I couldn't be in this role and have the experience, you know, like in real time and be able to stay in the conversation. And I hadn't really ever put, like, it's not my identity. Because as you're saying this to me, I'm like, huh, is cancer my identity? I'm like, no. It's not like this is a work I'm doing out of a commitment that rose from it. But, you know, what's my identity when I'm playing my guitar and singing my heart out a half hour before we uh, got on here, you know? Or Mm -hmm. any of the various other things that I love to do and being a father and everything else under the sun. It's, uh, yeah, there's something... That feels right, that feels free about doing the work, but not... Making it the only thing. Not making it the only thing. It's just something that I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like... Oh, I'll just what, so what I want to say is, yeah, I'm not sure if I said this, so I'll say it again. Having these emotion-filled awarenesses arise in these conversations can happen 
because it's not the only thing. There's like, a, it's more like, oh yeah, huh, that showed up. Yeah, that's part of the whole cancer thing. That's, you know, that's, it's not, honestly, I think you are putting it in words far better than I am because I haven't ever spoken about it. It's more just kind of been a natural progression, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're putting words to it now. Is having me go, yeah. oh, okay. That's yeah. what that is. So I'll let you speak. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I think that the reason, I, for me, sometimes I noticed for a while, especially after being a teenager and not really having, and still just developing and growing, not really having words for what I liked about cancer could invoke you know and that 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 there was something there that felt important to me and I didn't know if I should feel ashamed about that Mm, yeah and what it is is that you know like I've always just kind of been as people say a seeker and um that I had gotten down to the meat of life early was great for me but it was also without integration without someone sort of identifying what I had started to wrap my head around and helping me through that, it was also an issue, you know, like it was, it it created trauma and maladaptive behaviors. I didn't know how to kind of wrap my head around mortality and my understanding of the fact that it existed. (laughs) And I, I didn't know how to integrate that information and I didn't have the right support to do that again despite the fact that I had a wonderful medical team and really great natural support really great family and friends and it was also in my kind of personal philosophy probably genetics and just propensity to be really comfortable with the light and the dark being really close to each other and sort of rock starring my way around that for a while was my was was my thing and I'm speaking very metaphorically so I'll try and ground it in reality as I said when I got to Penn State I I don't know if I said I went to Penn State but I went to Penn State and the Penn Staters will be glad because they just they like to hear the state. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I just partied really hard and I didn't have to work very hard to do well at school. And I was, I got to college as a 17 year old and had not integrated what I had been through. And I partied hard and I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations as a kid because I didn't know how to integrate what I had learned and because it was probably in my natural inclination to to play with with that a little bit um to be wild so what did you not integrate that had you step into the partying world and the possible potential dangers oh just that i could die i mean just you know having had such a traumatic experience over 13 months of my life that was full of good and bad but you know that i didn't know why i felt like something was good about it. And I was pretty self-reflective, but I didn't have all the tools. You know, I could, mm-hmm. I was building self-awareness, but I also, when you're young and you don't know how to build self-awareness, it can become self-indulgence pretty 
easily. Um, Mm. So, you know, I just was kind of a mess with it for a little while. And that continued for a really long time. I also didn't feel safe. I mean, I had trauma. I didn't feel safe. I disassociated regularly. I put myself in risky situations to make myself know if I felt safe. I just had a lot of maladaptive behaviors because I didn't know how to handle the situation. And um, and there, and alcohol isn't a really good friend to my genetic makeup. And I didn't believe that I should really focus on first of all I didn't want to be in college remember I told Mm -hmm, you like I didn't really want to go um I wanted to figure out who I was and how to integrate this information and I didn't really care about career I you know I didn't I didn't think I didn't know how to care about money or building a future or any of those things like many teenagers who go off to college don't I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. I knew what I was excited about. You know, I studied anthropology. I studied environmental um, writing. I loved being outside. I, you know, did a lot of backpacking and playing and music. Music was always a part of my life. And I did all these things and I had a great time and I did okay, but I wasn't safe and I didn't keep myself safe. And I was actually really struggling when it seemed on the outside that I was doing okay and then at times it didn't seem like I was doing okay and I sought out my own help I was always a manager of my own care I was like okay I'm gonna go find somebody to talk to about this like clearly I'm not feeling okay like I'm I'm upset and I still wasn't diagnosed with PTSD for a while Mm. And it just meant, I mean, eventually I went to graduate school and still wasn't doing great. And I didn't believe for a really long time that I was going to have a future. And I didn't know how to value the things that I was doing to set myself up with a future. I just was still healing and it was so hard. And then in the middle of that, my dad committed suicide. Oh my my dad committed suicide almost 10 years ago now and I was kind of at like the already at the like sort of worst stage of not knowing how how to be an adult at that point I was having a very hard time integrating my past I had had other traumas that had compounded and caused more problems because of the 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 trauma of cancer and the maladaptive behaviors and violence that had happened against my body and just so much stuff kept piling and then my dad died who I was super close with and I think that a lot of that not my dad dying by suicide and I need to correct myself we don't say committed suicide because that makes it sound like it was a crime Mm. so we don't we don't use committed he died by suicide so of course you know that wasn't necessarily a part of part of it but it was another trauma and it and then there were some years of just not knowing what to do with myself and then I started to get my act together and get you know focus and in the meantime I was working you know I was 
I was going about my life and taking care of business, being a young adult, having successes here and there. And I had started to do patient advocacy when a friend had gotten sick and I traveled across the country to support them and their family. And I was just like, oh, I'm awesome at this. Um, (laughs) Like, I want to do this. I wonder if this is a thing. And it wasn't really yet. But I just started doing that on the side. So like other things were evolving, but I wasn't thriving and I wasn't okay for a bit. And it took a while to get there and I started to get there and then I got re-diagnosed. So when I got done with my second treatment, not only did I say, you know, I'm not going to party anymore. I'm not going to drink anymore. I got very committed to my healing process, my healing journey, and uncovering with the tools that I had, because I had them, I knew how to uncover resources and dig them up and create what I needed to, to have a really rewarding life that I felt like I deserved. And I say, like, I felt like I deserved because that was the biggest part to get to, to get myself to believe that I deserved that. Because one of the things that happens when you're diagnosed with a kid, as a kid, and sometimes one of the things that happens, regardless of how old you are when you get diagnosed, and regardless of your spiritual orientation, if you're alive in the world, often one of the questions that comes into your head is, what did I do? Right. What did I do? And for some of us, I mean, I was raised in a very spiritually open household. My mom grew up in the Jewish tradition. My dad's family was Episcopalian. I was taught to explore whatever I wanted to explore when it came to spirituality and religion. There was nothing instilled in me that said, you deserve this, you did something, and this is the outcome. But it still came up. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really sunk its teeth in for a while and that was one of the big pieces to recover from to be like not only is it safe to think that the world isn't gonna fall out from under you it might but you deserve to build what you can anyway that that took a while and that's why I like working with survivors because the reason that you want to have these conversations the reason that we like to have these conversations is because this is the meat of life (laughs) and we don't want to wrap our whole identity around it and we need to figure out how to integrate it. And it takes a really long time and it's really hard. Yeah. What's not resolved is going to reveal itself in ways that it takes the reins of our life. When I was a kid, uh, I was sexually assaulted and then I was uh, parented with some pretty intense, extreme violence. And, And so by the time I was 19, I had a motorcycle black leather jacket drunk as hell blasting down the road on that motorcycle risking other people's lives risking my own why because i didn't know how to deal with the fact that my self-worth was non-existent i didn't i didn't get that no one deserves to have success in life and no one doesn't deserve it there's no deserve involved in the conversation Mm -hmm. i lived inside Mm -hmm. of deserving it and after the second diagnosis, like you, well, I'll say it differently. It still wasn't, you know, I was uh, 
I was still in the midst of you know, dealing with a marriage that had ended badly. And uh, sometime after treatment ended, and it was a year or two, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to drink. Like, this is not serving me. Like, it, for me personally, my daily meditation practice among being there for many reasons one of them is so when something does come up i can just sit with that and let that show up let it arise bring it closer you know and just and just be with it and when i drink alcohol i can't do that alcohol does its magical thing that it's so good at it turns it off <laughs> it this is <laughs> It removes it from the equation for a while. And there came a point where I was like, I can't do my work if I'm drinking. People are like, oh, you don't like drinking? I love drinking. Then you can have a beer? No. I love drinking. I don't like how it, how it affects my life, how it impacts my life. I don't get to live how I want to live. I don't get to welcome that which has been calling for me so many years so what does that mean uh being a victim of childhood sexual assault i had huge issues around masculinity i had huge issues around self-worth i had huge issues around uh you know, weak you know ideas of weakness i hated the part of myself that didn't kick bite and scream i told this dude no i told him to leave him alone it's about a 20 second interaction i'm like no stop leave me alone but i didn't kick bite and scream so in my mind i had just like hated myself and any time in life when i would quote you know fight flight or freeze i would freeze i had it that i froze and so anytime i would freeze in my life i would just you know, take a left turn i wouldn't function i wouldn't you know well i wouldn't interact well with people i was interacting with then i worked with a uh therapist as well as a somatic sex educator mm. and brought all this work back up and and got to see this sweet little child who his he, he couldn't even comprehend what the hell was happening to him so he didn't really freeze but if he didn't kick bite and scream and i want to define that as freezing okay great he froze and why not he doesn't even understand what the hell is happening it was overwhelming. And so I was able to then go back and look at all these aspects of my life where I was just trying to cope. And now I just get, yeah, of course I made those choices. Of course I got on my, of course, of course I bought a motorcycle and bought and wore black leather chaps, boots, gloves, you know, a little piss pot helmet with my pony, trying to look as strong and tough as I possibly could because I didn't want the world to know that I was scared to death to be in this place. I didn't want to be here didn't know how to deal with yeah. it, drank, did drugs, all kinds of things because I didn't know how to deal with this. And all I was trying to, what was I trying to bury? All these terrible judgments I had of myself. And mm -hmm. so now I get, yeah, I've said this many times, but like, look, I'm a 1970 Sedan DeVille Cadillac. The muffler kind of shakes. One of the windshield wipers is messed up. Blinker doesn't always work. The steering wheel is kind of funny. And there's this one door that never shuts right. Like, that's me. I didn't design it.
but I do have to be responsible for going down the road. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have to be mindful of what I'm doing. I have to be responsible for this vessel. And there's aspects of me, there's parts of me that are still healing and recovering from my past. And there's huge growth that's happened in the last few years. But we step into our lives. And one day we wake up, we're like, oh, wait a second. What am I doing? How, how, how did I become this? This, this doesn't work for me. <laughs> And then slowly unpacking it and discovering, wait, who was I before all this happened? What do I love? What do I want to devote myself to? Because right now I'm devoting myself to getting drunk and being loud. (laughs) 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 And, And I've always felt, you know, I've been a seeker my whole life as well. And it was really fascinating how the two sit side by side, like, seeking on one side and getting really high or drunk or whatever on the other and trying to fit the two together until finally I went, oh, that distracting part goes away when I actually start being with all the coping mechanisms that I created. Yeah. All the ways yeah. that I, my mind did what it needed to do to, to find my way through because I didn't have the support I didn't have the language. I didn't have the understanding. I didn't know how to deal with this. And my mom did the best she could. Mm-hmm. She was the emotional support side of the family. She did the best she could, and it didn't provide me what I needed, but that's not a bad thing. My mom's my mom. That's who I get. I don't get another mom. <laughs> so what all she could do is be who she was. And so I had what I had, and I dealt with it how I dealt with it. And also, yeah, like when I work with clients, like it's, I mean, who am I available for? I'm available for folks who've been down a similar road because it's, it's, I can, it's a gift that you can empathize with your clients in ways that are just not available to people who haven't been through what you've been through. You've been through a lot. Yeah. You've been through a lot and it's not something we want, but it, it can be, uh, well, it's a resource. And it's it's my it's my story. Um, and I just want to say thank you for sharing that, Bert. And I'm really sorry that that happened to you, and um, that shouldn't have happened to you. Yeah, thank and you. So I just honor that you shared that. And I say, same thing for you. It's a you know, breaks my heart to imagine a 15 year old girl not having the support that she needs, not having the ideal support to go through what she's going through. Yeah, I mean, and I was... And then to I lose was, your dad when you're, like, and, and then to have another diagnosis, right, after that, to have, mm-hmm. to have your dad end his life by suicide. I think that's not a, that's, those are, those are, those, those are the life-changing moments that have such weight to them that it, uh, that makes it part of the honor to sit here with you. Yeah, thank you. I think, like you, I realized that what felt most important and what felt like it, you know, was going to help me integrate and have more peace was turning toward the the things that had happened and other behaviors and distractions and ways of coping were helpful at the time and we all find our medicines also there's timing for for everyone yeah. like i feel really lucky that i had 
again, like the, the privilege and the luck to be able to heal at my own pace Hmm. because I don't think that everyone gets that by any means. And that now that it is actually a joy is pretty amazing that life is a joy and that healing good and bad and hard and easier are joyful in the sense that I'm curious about them and that I'm not turning away and they actually get to process through them a lot you know like I get to process through the stages with a lot more grace and a lot more efficiently (laughs) and I am down for that I mean they you know they take everything takes its own time and its own pace but turning away it doesn't really move things along Right, it provides what it provides, but it doesn't forward growth and healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that's what you're seeking, then. Yeah. yeah. And I love how articulate you are because I have no shame around the fact that I'm not. <laughs> I'm not I, I can articulate. I love, I love your use of language. How, how about that? Because I don't have, it's just not, you know, as a kid, you know, I was, uh, I felt envy of my mom and brother and uncle and how, like, powerful they were with language and so I decided I was going to be powerful with the use of the word fuck and I was going to find more ways than you could possibly imagine (laughs) to use that word and profanity and express myself that way and it's uh looking back I'm like yeah that wasn't very useful perfect example of like (laughs) it ain't helpful but it is what it is so it's uh words can be very handy yeah I didn't you know if you use them less frequently they're far more powerful yeah but i was like i I went down that path and uh you share from hearing you be able to share from your experience and the trauma and the struggles it's uh really enjoyed and gotten a lot of listening to you speak about it with the, the generosity that you bring to your openness as well as the language that you use to convey it. It's provided me a lot. Thanks. Thanks. You're welcome. Instead of responding, so my, the, your use of swear words and your response to your families, the ways that they articulate themselves reminded me of my, I just learned how to play chess this year along with a lot of other people because of that TV show that came out. Great series. Um, I started playing that. <laughs> Huh? The uh, Queen's Gambit. Yeah, the Queen's. Gambit I don't series. watch. I barely watch anything other than with my son. I'm not, but somebody uh-huh. mentioned it, and it, the timing was right. Oh, I was in the hospital, uh-huh. so I put it on. I was like, "Wow, this is really good." <laughs> Loved yeah, it. it was good. I had some issues with it, but it was also really good. I only just learned to play chess because my dad taught my sister to play chess mm. before my sister's my little sister, who is now amazing epidemiologist who works in suicide prevention but my little sister who learned to play chess more than me I was like I'm never learning chess (laughs) and I got so I got really jealous and like put my foot down for some reason I mean there's the as an adult the last couple years I'm like oh yeah like why didn't I learn to play chess like as a younger person I should do that sometime being locked in my house and a Netflix show helped with that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes we try and be the, you know, we respond to 
that kind of stuff in funny ways. I was like, not learning chess. Not me. <laughs> yep, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. So funny. Really is. Well, I am so, I've learned a ton from you today. This has been really great. I super appreciate you giving all of us, you know, me and the listeners, your time. And again, being so open and with everything you've experienced. It's been a real treat. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the platform to share. It was cool to talk about this. You're welcome. So please tell everyone about your website and your social media, where they can find you. Okay. Um, My website is wovenhealthadvocacy.com. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook at woven.health.advocacy. And you can find me in both of those places. And I do have a blog, Spills Burt. And it's just getting up and running. Um, but there's some little pieces up there right now. And I'm around and uh, you can book a free half-hour consultation if you want to talk about survivorship and putting together a team and patient advocacy. If you'd like on my website as well. It was really fun to talk to you. Yeah, you too, you too. And if it's not obvious to everyone, you know, the work can all be done on the phone and on video conference and all those kinds of things. It's not an in-person, it's not a strictly in-person Indeedy. service you provide. Indeed. I have HIPAA compliant platforms to talk to you. And if we need to talk with a doc, we can do that too. And everything is all secure and able to be done online and safe and sound and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's almost a given now that we're in the COVID era, but it's still worth saying. Totally. Thank you for that. You're so welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks for having me, Bert. got it. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast to ensure we continue to provide the best quality episodes to our listeners around the world, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. See you all in the next episode and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.